He's been my governor, now my senator. He was kind enough to write the exceptional foreword to my book for Allison, and I consider him a friend. Senator Tim Kaine, welcome to The Cultural Scavenger. Andy, I'm proud to be your friend, and what a treat to visit with you a little bit today. Thank you, sir. So let's start with something totally removed from politics that is not on your Wikipedia page that should be there. (laughs) I've only known two harmonica players that served in Congress. The first (laughs) one was an obscure congressman from Austin where I grew up named Jake Pickle. I don't know if that name rings a bell. He was... I, I remember LB- the name. I didn't know he was a harmonica player. Yeah, he was a harmonica player. He was tight with LBJ. And and more importantly, he was a friend of my dad's who ran a music store there. And he always kept Jake in good supply of Honer harmonicas, <laughs> which I happen to have one right here, as you can see. That's, that looks like a... And- maybe- and that that's looks about, like a special 20 or a blues harp, maybe. Yeah. It's, that's what it is. It's a blues harp. And it's a B-flat. It's mm. in, in, in a key of, of B-flat. And um, now, I, I never heard Jake play, but I suspect he's not in your league because not only do you play a very badass harmonica, you write songs, too. And for those mm-hmm. listening, I'll put the link in my show notes for the senator's latest hit, Self Unemployed, which was just wonderful. And it was real. It's a clever oh, song. You. you sound great in it. And I read that you carry around a harmonica in your briefcase. And you've got one for each of the main keys. You've got A to G and then plus an E sharp, correct? That's right. I, yeah, so I carry eight with me. I don't have my, I'm sitting in my Senate hideaway office because we're in the middle of voting today. I don't, and my briefcase is over in my main office in the Russell building. But, you know, I, I carry uh, eight harmonicas because you never know when there's an emergency need for a harmonica player. I mean, it could just crop up at any moment. Um, I, I, and I know. like to be able to play with bands as much as I can. Well, and I think that A to G, I don't know that this B flat, I think unless you're playing with an orchestra, I don't think that really works with a, you know, with a bluegrass band, does it? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny, you know, you could almost play any song in any key. Now, there's some where it'll sound better than the other, but but um, what the way I play is I cannot read music. So mm-hmm. the band just tells me, hey, we're going to play this song in this key, and then I find the right key. Um, or with that, if I was sitting with you, I, I could play some good music on that one. I could play some good bluegrass music on that one. It would just be in a key that you might not have otherwise heard, but I could, I could make it sound okay. <laughs> when did you start playing harmonica and how did you pick it up? Um, Andy, I was about, I was about 13 and I realized I was jealous of my friends who could play instruments and they, and they were taking music lessons and music lessons was just not something that my family did. So, and my school didn't offer, you know, instrumental music. So I just asked myself, I wonder if there is an instrument I can teach myself to play. And I thought, well, you know, what about a harmonica? So I bought one. And one summer between seventh and eighth grade, I'd walk up to my local elementary school after dinner so I could be out of earshot of my parents. And I would try to teach myself one song. And I'd sit there for an hour until I learned how to play Oh Susanna. And then I would get better at it. And then next week, I'd teach myself to play When the Saints Go Marching In. So over the course of the summer, I probably taught myself about 10 songs. But it's kind of like then you got the muscle memory. Then you know how the instrument works. And so even though I can't read music, if I were to sit in with the band and they were to play a song that I'd never heard before, as long as they tell me what key it's in by halfway through the first verse, I'm generally able to play virtually anything except, you know, complicated, like modern jazz music where they're changing keys a lot. I would oh, have yeah. trouble on that. Although I'd, I'd figure it out, 
but you're right. I just wrote my first song, Self Unemployed. I co-wrote it with somebody. We got a fantastic group in Nashville to record it. I did the harmonica track on it. Uh, my friend Roger, who I wrote the song with, we decided this was so much fun. Let's let's write some more. So we're now working on a tune, and I'll just give you the name of it. But we're still working on it called Bullfrogs and Lightning Bugs. Perfect. And uh, that's the next that's the next one that we're working on. Um, but it's fun. And as you know, in Virginia, there's so much music, so many music festivals that to be able to just show up and they say, well, our senator's here. Senator, come on up and play with us. And then when I do, it's an icebreaker with the crowd. And usually the crowd at the end says, you know, that Tim Kaine, we like that guy. We're not going to vote for him. We really like him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, at least you it sounds like you're auditioning for your post-Senate career, right? <laughs> this is this is going to be in, your new gig. Yeah, in pot. Well. In politics, you got to have a fallback. You, know? <laughs> you got to have a fallback. That's right. And yours is in reverse. Usually, if, you know, if you're a musician, you say, "Well, you know, I got to have a real job to support my music <laughs> musical habit." Well, right, you, right. Your wife Anne is the daughter of former Governor Linwood Holton. My question is: When did politics hit your radar, and how did your father-in-law react to you deciding to be a Democrat? Um, Andy, um, I, I grew up in the least political family you could imagine in Kansas City, where I grew up. My dad mm-hmm. ran this iron working shop. We were not political at all. Politics was like pro baseball or Hollywood. You know, those people have their names in newspapers, and I never saw a name in a newspaper of anybody I knew. That just wasn't us. I guess marrying Ann when I was going to be a civil rights lawyer and she wanted to be a legal aid lawyer, and now starting to get to know her dad when we moved to Richmond. It sort of demystified politics. Oh, he's a regular person just like anybody else. But where politics for me kicked in was I was a civil rights lawyer in the capital of the Confederacy. And I was trying to represent people who've been discriminated against on the grounds of their race, usually. And I noticed that my city council was very divided along racial lines on on controversial issues, on the small things people would work together. But if it was a big issue, it was just too common for my city council to be the white council members would kind of be in one corner and the African-Americans in another corner. And I was young and naive and thought I could be a bridge builder. So, you know, I got into politics as a city councilman in Richmond in 1994, my first race with the hope that I could be a bridge builder between our white and black communities. And that's, and that's kind of what's continued to inspire me 27 years later, building bridges, whether it's across racial lines or geographic lines or, or partisan lines, Republicans and Democrats. When I told Lenwood that I was going to run for city council, which was a nonpartisan race, by then he knew I was a Democrat and he didn't have any problem with that. But he told me when I told him I was going to run for city council, he said, why in the hell would you do something like that? And I said, Lynn, you always talk about public service is important and people should do it. He goes, yeah, yeah. But I didn't mean local office. Local (laughs) office is the graveyard of any good politician. Well, that was the one piece of advice that he gave me that I did not follow. And I'm really glad I didn't follow it. And he says he's glad I didn't follow it because I sort of feel like if I'm good at anything in politics, it was because I was a city councilman and mayor. It just built the foundation of accessibility and listening to people and finding that the best solutions usually come if you listen to people, it comes right out of their mouths and then you do them. Um, I learned some good habits in local government that I've tried to hold on to 27 years later. Local government is where the rubber meets the road. And, uh, indeed, indeed. And, and you are one of these rare political leaders that serve for the right reason. Andy, I'll say this, my, my observation 
after nearly three decades is now is virtually everybody gets into it for the right reason, but then a whole lot of people stay into it for the wrong reason. Most everybody has a desire to get in because they want to help people or mm-hmm. something happened to them. They don't want it to happen to somebody else or they see something in their neighborhood. But, you know, you get in and people start to call you, put a title in front of your name and there start to be new influences. A lot of people in politics start to focus more on the inside game lights, what's happening in the Capitol or what's happening in Capitol Hill or uh, in Richmond, the Capitol grounds. And they quit focusing on the outside game. What do people who aren't on Capitol Square need? And um, I have a really dynamic and principled wife. And I always say I was born with a good moral compass, and then I married a wonderful anchor. And with a good compass and a good anchor, you can keep in a good direction. And I've tried to stay in it for the right reason, not just get into it for the right reason. Well, and you do. Which did you like better, being mayor, governor, or now senator? Andy, almost everybody who's asked that question would tell you governor. I'm one of the few people that don't say that because the jobs are so very, very different. Governor is a great job because it's an executive job. I, you know, I had 100,000 state employees and there were some things that I could say, let's do it. And they would do it. Other things, I'd have to get a cooperative general assembly, which wasn't always easy as you know. <laughs> yeah. but, but you can do a lot as an executive. The Senate job is so different. But in the Senate, I'm on armed services and foreign relations, the, the role of America in the world and our troops. I wasn't able to do that as governor. So it's really a powerful thing. But I'll tell you this. If you were to say to me, I'm going to take away every title you've ever held except one. What title would you hold on to? I'd hold on to mayor because if I'm good at anything in politics, it was because I was a mayor. And if I hadn't been the mayor of Richmond, I wouldn't have been elected governor mm-hmm. and I wouldn't have been elected to the United States Senate. Interesting. Five years ago, we thought that we would be calling you Mr. Vice President. And obviously, you know, a lot of people were stunned. But what was it like running in a presidential race? Andy, I mean, it was a, it was an amazing experience, 105 days. You know, if you're going to do it, do the 105-day version like I did. Don't run for president for two years. How, how people run the two-year campaign, I mean, that's, I can't imagine it. So I got point. added, you know, I got added on July 23rd and was there till election day. You know, many emotions about it. So happy to have had the opportunity. As you know, I worked really hard in the initial core group uh, that helped elect Barack Obama president. So I played Mm -hmm. a key role, not just personally, but with the Virginia electoral votes and helping the first African-American be president of the United States. Yeah, you were one of the first people to come out and endorse him. Yeah, I was the first um, official outside Illinois to endorse him. I so much wanted to do the same thing for the first woman president of the United States. You know, I didn't I wasn't on the ticket because I had run for president. I had I just wanted to help elect a good woman to be president of the United States and then work for four years to help her be successful. Because when when we break glass ceilings and we make the, the model, oh, an African-American or minority can be a great president or a woman can be a great president, we grow as a nation. And, you know, that I'll count that as my chief failure in public life that I wasn't able to be successful in that. You know, it was it was painful. It was painful to see the double standard that still applies to women candidates. And it's no surprise in Congress right now, we have about 25% women. But, you know, Andy, that ranks us in the world. If you look at the percentage of women in 
in the parliamentary bodies around the world, having 25% ranks us below the global average. We're like 100th in the world. Afghanistan's better than us. Iraq's better than us. Mexico's better than us. Canada's better than us. We do a lot of things well, including some things well for women, but we're kind of uniquely bad at electing women to higher office. And that's unfortunate. And, but I'm so glad that, you know, I gave it my all and we came up short. We won the Virginia vote. So that was, that was, that was at least nice. But <laughs> yeah. yeah. We exactly. came up short and, and, and that just meant I went back to the Senate a couple of days later and redoubled my efforts to try to do my best job for Virginians. We find ourselves almost hopelessly divided as a country and there's no place that exemplifies that more, unfortunately, than Congress. Yeah, um, you're right. you you and your chief of staff, Mike Henry, who I've told you many times, you have the best chief of staff in Congress. You guys have helped me in my fight to get Allison's murder video removed from YouTube. But Section 230 prevents any yeah. real reforms. So, yes. you know, you've got murder videos, conspiracy theories, disinformation that undermines our democracy. And Congress can't seem to get over the hump to do something about it. So. Yeah. That's the preface. My question, part one is, it has to be beyond frustrating for you, right? Andy, there there are a lot of frustrations here, but of course, everybody who has a job is used to frustrations. I'm a very fortunate person, you know. Yeah, I got frustrations and it's challenging, but like I'm talking to you today, I ducked out of a meeting upstairs on a bipartisan infrastructure bill that is big and exciting that we're going to have a key vote on tonight, but we have a real chance to move it forward. So, you know, uh, Frustrations happen every day, but you have to keep looking for opportunities. You mentioned Allison, who you know, who I knew well. Allison covered me when I was mm-hmm. lieutenant governor and governor, somebody that I really thought was so very, very talented. And and you and I have talked about her. And as you pointed out, the book that you wrote about her and about your crusade to bring some sense to this country in terms of our gun rules, I've really been educated through knowing you. The Section 230 issues, you're right, they've been hard but even they are not impossible. We, we made an ex- exception to Section 230 a couple of years ago to put the burden upon internet service providers if they have content that facilitates sex trafficking or other human traffic. Right. And now we've had an experiment. That bill has been law for about three or four years. And we're analyzing it, Andy, to see did it do what we hoped it would without unnecessary, unexpected consequences that we think are too bad. And as we figure that out, I think we can apply that model to other things as well, because as you mentioned, it's not just the video of Allison's murder. These platforms today are perpetrating misinformation about vaccines yep. and COVID is spiking because a whole lot of people are buying into the big lie and are yep. choosing not to get vaccines that are effective and easily available to them. So I think if we've if we've carved out a little um, exception to the blanket immunity that Section 230 provides, and we find that it's working to reduce the use of these platforms to facilitate sex trafficking, that may give us a roadmap to other carve-outs so that these service providers don't just get this blanket immunity that allow them to propagate all kinds of violent or, or false or dangerous information. Well, part two of that question is, is there any hope for us, given how one party now and 74 million people have been absorbed like Invasion of the Body Snatchers, if you remember that movie, yeah. into the yes. cult of Trump. And I, you, I know you're a reader. I'm reading Landslide, Michael Wolf's Landslide, and it's just mm-hmm. it's it's like rubbernecking, you know, watching yeah. an accident. It's fascinating. 
But one of the Trump aides told Trump, he said, Mr. President, when they're trying to figure out how to overturn the election, Mr. President, they'll do whatever you tell them. And yeah. as we saw on January 6th, that's true. Our right mm-hmm. to vote is under attack. Jim Crow laws and gerrymandering. What's the solution? How can well, we I'll tell you, come together with it? Andy, there's no, there's no one solution. There's a lot of solutions to the individual pieces. But in a way, what you're asking me is, do I still have hope when you see the number of people that were willing to, like lemmings, you know, follow Donald Trump off a cliff to, you know, destroy our democracy if you told them to? And I do have hope. And you know why I have hope? I have hope because of Virginia. When I moved yep. to Virginia, we were the, the death penalty capital of the United States in the history of the United States. We're an abolition state now. In the last couple of years, we, we have embraced the fight against climate change. We've enacted laws to guarantee LGBTQ equality. We've done common sense gun safety. We've gone from the 45th state in the country, 45th out of 51 in terms of difficulty to vote, to now fifth in the country in terms of ease of willingness to vote. We went from reliably read everywhere, essentially read in presidential elections since 1948 with a quirky 1964 as kind of the sole counter. We've now gone blue in four presidential elections in a row. And your listeners may be red or blue, but I'm, I'm here to tell you, we've changed. We have changed. We've changed dramatically. And in my way of thinking, we changed dramatically for the good just since I've lived here in 1984. And I tell people we can do it in Virginia. We can do it anywhere. So, yeah, have, we've got some challenges in this country, but I'm given hope by what I've seen Virginians do during my 27 years in public life. And to your point. I think that Virginia leads the way. And I call myself a Texan by birth, but a Virginian by choice. It's that's because a, that's of a great gr- way to put it. Because of great, caring people and public servants like you. And I know you got to hop, but I just want to thank you for joining me today. It's been a pleasure as always. And I will see you on the campaign trail this fall as we uh, make sure that Terry McAuliffe gets elected, as well as keep the General Assembly in Democrats' control. Andy, it's so great to be with you. I I love talking, and I'm going to pass on your generous compliment to Mike. Anybody who compliments anybody on my staff earns a warm spot with me. So thank you for recognizing what a talented public servant I have as my chief. Thank you for your advocacy. Thank you for your friendship and your willingness to educate and entertain, and I'll see you out on the trail. That sounds good, my friend. Take care. Okay. Be good. Say hey to Barbara. Well, that's the story. A special acknowledgement to Mary Ann Kennedy, Pat Bunch, and Pam Rose for allowing me to use their music from Safe in the Arms of Love, a song Allison loved. If you liked what you heard, please share my podcast with your friends. And while you're at it, why not subscribe? And I'd sure appreciate a great rating in Apple Podcasts, too. I'm Andy Parker. And I'll be here next week with another episode of The Cultural Scavenger. Thanks for listening.